Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Today, we'll be expositing Romans chapter 1, verses 24 to 25. In these verses, we will continue to learn more about the results of man's rejection of God. Now, before we move on any further, let's read the text. I invite you to open your Bibles with me so we can study together. So Romans chapter 1 verses 24 to 25 says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 24 begins with the word, Therefore. This is the first therefore in the book of Romans. Subsequently, as the saying goes, whenever you see the word therefore in the Bible, you must always ask, what is it there for? What this word is there for is that it alerts the reader that the apostle is now drawing a conclusion by connecting what he just said to what he is about to say. Hence, in verse 24, Paul makes a deduction based on the preceding argument. And where is the preceding argument? In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. And what does the apostle argue there? He argues that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the sin of men of earth. Why is God's wrath revealed? Because although God has revealed himself and made a basic awareness of the Lord evident to all men, they suppress the truth. God has not left himself without a witness because his self-revelation happened on the grand stage of creation. That is, all people everywhere all the time come to a basic understanding of the existence and the nature of the invisible God through what has been visibly made. And what has been visibly made that testifies about God? Examples include that the earth exists and that it sustains life. Other examples include the rain, seasons, and plants that can both be eaten and produce oxygen. Quite simply, all of these examples testify to the fact that there is a creator who created and that he cares for what he made. All of this leaves humanity without excuse, and this is why the just wrath of God is revealed. So now what happens? After a man suppresses the truth about God, what are the results? We already know how God responds from heaven, but what happens to the man of earth? Well, the results are all negative because truth suppression never comes with a benefits package. The result is that a man dishonors God and adopts an overall posture of ingratitude toward his maker. Their thinking subsequently becomes godless and senseless, and their desires become corrupt. This results in idolatry, where a man exchanges worship of the glorious and incorruptible God for an inglorious and corruptible false God. In idolatry, man's heart basically says, I don't like the real God, so instead, I will worship a little g-god of my own choosing. This little g-god or idol can be anything and is made in the image of a creature, like a man, a man's philosophy, or an animal. It's important not to miss that in this exchange of idolatry, no one actually turns away from God in order to become worship neutral. They turn away from God in order to worship something else. 
man was made by the Lord to worship. So in idolatry, man proves that even at his worst, he cannot revoke the purpose for which God made him. So all of that is the argument that Paul makes in Romans 1, 18-23, that God has revealed himself, and the response of men is that they suppress God's truth. As a result, God expresses wrath. Here now is where Paul says, therefore, so because of that, now this. Verse 24 says, therefore, God gave them over. In other words, in verse 24, Paul says that as a result of man's suppression of divine truth, God gives them over. In fact, the text speaks about God giving men over three times. Here in verse 24, then in verses 26 and 28. So what does this mean exactly? Well, if we look at the verb for gave over in Greek, what we discover is that it is a verb that carries deep meaning. For example, Paul uses it in 1 Corinthians 13.3 to communicate giving up one's body to be burned. He writes, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Paul also uses the verb in two other epistles that refer to Jesus giving himself up to be crucified. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. And Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you, and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And in Ephesians 5.25, the text says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. My point in examining how this verb is used in the New Testament is to illustrate the intensity of the giving over. God giving over does not communicate casual indifference or detached apathy. Using human language, it communicates the idea of God anguishing over the giving over because God is close and intimately involved. Just as Jesus sweated blood in the Garden of Gethsemane as he anguished over his impending sacrifice, he eventually gave himself up to be crucified. So now we have a sense of what God giving over means. But to what is God giving men up? He certainly does not hand men over to nothing since God is sovereign over all of reality. The rest of verse 24 answers the question for us. The full text of that verse says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Essentially then, when God gives a man over, what God is doing is giving a man over to himself. Look at what the text says, that God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Whose heart is Paul talking about? Their heart or the man's heart. Hence, when God gives a man over, the Lord removes his presence that graces, protects, and restrains. When this happens, there is nothing holding a man back from being as evil as he wants to be. As a result, his heart does what's in its nature and lusts after impurity. 
the man desires and then does that which is unclean without restraint. This predicament is horrifying because the foulest thing that can happen to a sinner is to be allowed to continue sinning without divine check. Now, how do we know that when God removes his presence, that a person is not just neutral and can choose to do either good or bad? How do we know that when God removes his presence, that a person is inclined to do evil? The answer is because the Bible tells us that the human heart's innate predisposition is neither toward good nor is it neutral. It is toward evil. As it says in Jeremiah 17:9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And as Psalm 53, 1-3 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, who seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Beloved, by its own nature, the human heart is sick and diseased. This is precisely and exactly why all men need a Savior who can heal their heart sickness. This is also precisely and exactly why salvation is God's plan. Left to itself, man's diseased heart will never lead him to light. It will only lead him to darkness as each and every step is animated by the longing and eagerness for impurity. Only Jesus is the great physician who can make a man well. And when a person is born again, the Holy Spirit regenerates them into a new creature with a brand new heart. Let's read the first part of Romans 1.24 again. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. There is a precise term that communicates the idea of God giving over men to the lusts of their own heart. That term is judicial abandonment. In plain language, judicial abandonment means that God punishes sin with sin. Certainly, God does not cause us to sin, nor does he tempt us with sin, James 1.13. Rather, when a man persists in unrepentant sin, he is in essence telling God, I don't want you. God then justly says, thy will be done, and judicially abandons the person. Hence, they now get to experience life without God's graceful protection. As a man abandons God, so God abandons man, and when he does, the man runs headfirst into sin. Let us be mindful that no one is ever judicially abandoned by the Lord unless it is earned. Many men fight against God, and what judicial abandonment tells us is that God permits some to fall into the sin that they want. God merely permits them by allowing them to do without restraint. The lusts of their own hearts subsequently drive them deeper and deeper into the darkness. In Romans 1.18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. When we now ask, specifically, how is the wrath of God revealed, an answer is judicial abandonment. It, in and of itself, is an expression of the wrath of God, where God gives over. I just mentioned that in judicial abandonment, God punishes sin with sin. So why is sin so dangerous? 
Sin is lethal because the penalty for sin is death and eternal condemnation. Romans 6.23 Sin is merciless because it exerts power over a man and puts him in chains. Sin also pollutes in that what a man is, what he thinks, and what he does is all corrupt. It is corrupt because it lacks conformity to the moral law of God. So Romans 1.24 says that as a result of man's truth suppression and idolatry, God gave him over. And here's an important point not to miss. There is a dual sense of the verb gave over. What I mean by that is, God does not give a man over so that now the man does not deal with God. Rather, God removes his grace and then gives a man over to God's judgment. The one thing that we can never forget is that God is King and Lord of all. He is sovereign over everything and is everywhere all the time. It is impossible for God to give a man over and that man now live in a vacuum separate from the Lord. Hence, when a sinner turns away from God, he never escapes him. He merely rejects God's mercy so that now he embraces divine judgment. Consequently, in judicial abandonment, God acts like a just judge who delivers a prisoner over to the punishment that he has merited. The person who enacts that punishment is not a jailer or an angel. It is God himself. Accordingly, when people rebel against God, what they get is never what they expected because in the end, sin always disappoints. As C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Problem of Pain, quote, The unregenerate enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved, end quote. Sin is dangerous because it fools a person into thinking that they are getting what they want now, but what they are ultimately getting is their worst nightmare, misery, hopelessness, and separation from God. As Thomas Watson writes in his classic Body of Divinity, quote, Sin puts gravel in our bread and wormwood in our cup, end quote. I must now openly and publicly correct myself and repent for teaching something that was not technically correct. Why do I say this? Because I have preached and taught before that God's justice is finite and that His grace is infinite. Yet, what judicial abandonment teaches us is that God's grace is not infinite, technically speaking. After all, if God's grace were infinite, hell would not exist. Indeed, one could say that God's grace is infinite insofar as God is infinite and that he will be around forever to demonstrate grace. But what judicial abandonment makes plain is that at some point for some people, God stops being gracious and hands them over to sin. The result is not grace, but judgment. In that sense, grace is not infinite. This also helps to explain the great white throne judgment spoken of in the book of Revelation. That is, at some discrete point in the future, God will not show infinite grace, but will once and for all judge all sin. The good news, of course, for all those who are in Christ is that the wrath of God for the elect was already poured out on Jesus on the cross. Therefore, for all those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. By now, I hope everyone is clear on what judicial abandonment is, why it is, and how it works. 
the reason why I stressed it so much is to highlight the simple fact that when God actually gives a man what he wants and leaves him alone, what the man ends up getting is not freedom to live, but being locked up to die. The question now is, what does this enslavement look like? What are the tangible results of judicial abandonment in the life of an unrepentant sinner? One result is that a person becomes a slave to the unrestrained, impure lusts of their own heart, trapping them in an ever-deepening cycle of sin. Subsequently, the result is that a person experiences deeper and deeper consequences of their sin. What are some of these consequences? Well, Paul gives us a list of specifics at the end of Romans chapter 1. But generally speaking, sin consequentially robs a person of their humanity, meaning it reduces a person to less than what God has called them to be. Instead of operating like a child of God, a man acts like a senseless animal. Instead of living a life filled with contentment, dignity, and honor, man settles for the fleeting, unfulfilling, and consumptive pleasures of iniquity. Sin causes a person misery and fills their soul with shame and guilt. It also robs them of a clear conscience so that they live life in a constant state of uneasiness. Ironically, sin so pollutes the mind that it makes a man acutely aware of his sinfulness, yet darkens his desires so that the very God that can save him is the same God that he runs away from. Truly, the final consequence of sin is death, but while a man remains on earth, sin leads to total depravity as described in Romans chapter 1 verses 28 to 32. This depravity is total in that it is a depravity of heart, mind, and soul. This manifests as an endless stream of darkness, including wickedness, greed, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, slander, arrogance, mercilessness, and the hearty approval of those who orchestrate evil schemes. The sad and unfortunate reality is that the present world and the history of civilization proves that the wrath of God has been and is being revealed against sin. In other words, how human beings are proves that the wrath of God is real and that judicial abandonment is true. What do I mean by this? What I mean is that Romans 124, 26, and 28 all communicate the idea that if a man abandons God, then God abandons man. When a person turns away from the Lord, the wrath of God is revealed, and the result is a depraved person who causes trauma in a broken world. When a tribe, nation, culture, or society turns away from the Lord, the wrath of God is revealed, and the result is a depraved group of people. In fact, the depravity can be so severe that men call what is right restrictive and outdated, and what is wrong liberating and acceptable. Look around you. What is the world chock full of? Depravity. Murder, adultery, infanticide, abuse, interpersonal strife, bigotry, racism, you name it. If you look at the history of the human race, if you read the newspaper this morning, if you've ever looked out at the planet and asked yourself, what's wrong with the world? Why are people like this? Why are things the way that they are? If you've ever asked any of those questions, the answer can be found in Romans 1. The simple answer is the revelation of the wrath of God due to sin. Now before we move on, let us make sure that we do not get depressed under the weight of depravity described in Romans 1. 
Remember, Paul writes about the depth of the darkness here only to set up the glorious light of the gospel in chapter 3. Yes, the bad news is very heavy and the weight can seem daunting. The good news, however, is that the same God who described to us why the world is the way that it is also tells us the means by which a broken man may be reconciled to his son. It is Christ who lifts the heavy weight of our sin and nails it to an old wooden cross. We now turn to the final clause of Romans 1.24. The full verse says, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. On the one hand, what this verse tells us is that the less a man honors God, verse 21, the more dishonored will his body be. On the other hand, one may wonder why dishonoring God specifically manifests as dishonor in a person's physical body. Yes, in the following verses, the apostle specifically explains to us how their bodies will be dishonored through homosexual acts. But the question still remains, why does dishonor of God result in the dishonor of one's physical body? Well, I cannot be too rigid in my conclusion here since the text does not give us a precise answer. I can only make an inference based on the biblical canon overall. We know from other places in the New Testament that sexual misconduct was a big problem in the first century church and that fornication is a sin against one's own body. See 1 Corinthians 6 verses 8 to 12 and 10, 7 to 8 Acts 15.20 and Galatians 5.21. Hence, Paul spoke out against sexual misconduct frequently in his instructions to specific churches. Even more, at the time, many idolatrous pagan rituals involved group debauchery and temple prostitution. Cognizant of this historical context, what we also know from creation is that God made human beings in His image. We also know that sex existed before the fall of humankind. That is, sex existed in paradise before sin corrupted it. In the Garden of Eden, sex existed the way God designed it, something beautiful and delightful in the context of marriage between one man and his wife. Genesis 2, 23-25 Sex was a natural part of the way things were supposed to work. Let us also not forget that sex is relational between people so that ideally a healthy monogamous relationship in marriage begets healthy sex. The inverse is also true, that unhealthy sex results from unhealthy relationships. So when I put all that together, I think the best inference to be drawn from Romans 1.24 is this. That in response to human idolatry, when God gives humanity over to full indulgence of its lust, what results is the degeneration of natural and healthy sexual relations down to unnatural and unhealthy sexual relations. The result is a dishonoring of a person's body in that it is used in dishonorable ways. Now, someone may say that God stepping back and letting people indulge in their sexual desires may not seem like an expression of wrath. But when you take a step back and begin to consider all of the damage unchecked human sexual desire causes on multiple levels, you can begin to see how dangerous it is. 
Just consider how toxic the following sins are, not just in the moment, but in the long term, extending well beyond the people immediately involved. Sexual abuse of a child, adultery in a marriage with children, sex trafficking with the intent of forcing women into prostitution, rape, and bestiality. It is impossible to overinflate the consequences of God giving man over and allowing him to reap the results of his sexual lusts. The final verse today is Romans 1.25. That text says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. I won't say too much about this verse because what Paul writes here is very similar to what he wrote in verse 23. There, he used different words, but here, he essentially conveys the same basic idea. At the end of the day, if a man exchanges the glory of the incorruptible God for something corruptible, he is exchanging the truth of God for a lie. The lie spoken of can either be a false God, false views about God, or just a fraudulent idea. For example, in the Old Testament, pagan gods themselves are called lies. See Jeremiah 13.35 and 26.19. In scripture overall, anything that which it is not supposed to be is called a lie, and anything that pretends to be is called a lie. See Leviticus 19.11, Proverbs 6.16-19, John 8.44, and Revelation 21.8. So what Romans 1, 18-25 has told us is that man first suppresses God's truth and then exchanges it. It takes work to engage in both of these active processes so you can imagine why so many people are psychologically exhausted from all of their repression and swapping. Yes, this exchange of the truth of God for a lie is necessary because if a person does not do it, they are actually stuck with the capital T Truth. This means they will have to deal with the real God. Hence, they have to exchange it for something that is tolerable so they can function. Now notice something very peculiar about what verse 25 says. What a fallen creature will never do is substitute truth for truth. They always exchange truth for a lie so they can worship a fallen idol. It's important not to miss that because in idolatry, a fallen creature will never create something holy. Fallen creatures always create and then worship fallen idols. The idols they make are never sovereign, are never all-knowing, nor are they all-powerful. They never make idols like that because then the man would be accountable to that idol. Fallen creatures instead prefer the blasphemous and the worldly because that is a little g-god they can control. This is why all superheroes have an Achilles heel and why even Superman has something that can bring him to his knees, kryptonite. The final thing I will say today ends where Paul ends in Romans 1.25. He describes God as the one who is blessed forever. Paul then does something curious when he writes amen, seemingly in the middle of a chain of thought. Paul is certainly not praying in these verses, so why does he insert the word amen? I think Paul was merely reflecting on the nature and character of God, who is blessed forever. Paul then writes amen, which means truly or I agree. When we take a big step back, Paul is in the middle of talking about unbelief and its consequences. Yet, in spite of fallen man, God is gracious, 
kind, and blessed to redeem man out of his depravity. Perhaps this is what persuaded Paul to write Amen in contemplation of the magnificent Sovereign Lord. If one were to read the depiction of humanity in Romans 1, one would be persuaded to say, why bother with humankind at all? We can all say amen to the fact that God did bother with us because that is who he is, blessed, loving, gracious, and Savior. He did not have to, but he did. Jesus did not have to die for our sins, but he did. Therefore, blessed be our Lord Jesus Christ forever. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.